Welcome to the Heights Sermon Series Podcast, where each week you'll hear a new message that'll help you with your life shaped by the Word. Hey, Heights family, man, I hate to not be with you guys today. I'm at a, a board of trustees meeting. As a matter of fact, I've been on this board for eight years, and this weekend is my, my last meeting with them. So, And also, this meeting has kind of coincided with our Youth Sunday the last several years, and so I've missed that, and I, boy, I hate to miss Youth Sunday. I believe it's one of the most important things we do in our church, and it sure played an important role in my life. I'm excited about our youth that are engaged and involved with that today. And of course, in just a moment, you're going to hear Micah. And I had a chance to listen to him this past Wednesday night, and it's it's awesome. Hey, I want to talk to you real quick about June 11. We have a really special opportunity. Several months ago, I read this book, Cannabis and the Christian. You know, it's amazing uh, with all that's going on in our world today, what doesn't even make the conversation? What isn't even being talked about? And the legalization of marijuana has swept our nation. And you know, for so many decades, we said, ah, you, don't, you can't smoke pot because it's against the law. Well, it's not against the law anymore. And there is no actual verse that says, don't smoke pot. So how does a Christian work through recreational marijuana, medicinal marijuana. Is that right? Is that wrong? You know what I like about this book is not only do we have the specific topic of marijuana, but just really any issue where there's no specific verse that says do or don't, he kind of gives you the biblical wisdom to work through that. Uh, I've gotten to know Todd these last couple months over the phone, and I'm so excited to have him here at our church. He is a, uh, the, a theologian, a professor at Western Conservative Theological Seminary, and has spent his whole life in Oregon. He has grown up uh, for decades now. Oregon has had legalized pot. So it's the culture he grew up in. And uh, so he has a good understanding, and he's going to help you and I not only work through this, but just how we make biblical decisions. June 11 is going to be a great day. Both services, be here and invite someone. Well, good morning, church. As Randy said, my name is Micah, and I think that June 11th service is just going to be an an amazing opportunity to answer some hard-hitting questions that we have to deal with in our culture today. And if you don't know me, last year I had the opportunity to preach here on Youth Sunday, And after that, and as I served more and more in a teaching and leadership position in our youth group, I felt that God was calling me into ministry. So after Youth Sunday last year, and as the year went on, I started to see ministry as the only career that made any sense for me, and that is what God had planned for me. So with that, starting in the fall, I am attending Southeastern Seminary and pursuing a degree in student ministry. And part of how my life has changed as a result of this calling is how I read my Bible. Now when I'm reading my Bible, I'm constantly looking for new sermon topics or just research ideas or just things to talk with my friends about. And I was going through the church Bible reading plan and I came across Matthew chapter 4 and it's the story of Jesus being tempted in the wilderness. And something about that passage just really stuck out to me. And I knew that if I was given the opportunity to preach today, that that's what I wanted to preach on. And as it got closer to today, and as I was told that I was going to be preaching, 
and I was writing and preparing for this sermon, our youth group started a series on temptation. So, of course, Matthew 4 comes up. And pretty much every week, we're talking about Matthew 4. And it wasn't just in our youth group. It felt like everything church-related that I was going to, we were talking about Matthew 4. The youth group, young adult small group, Randy's sermons, even the student collective conference that we hosted here at the Heights. And this is going to sound like I'm making it up. But last night, my boss and I were talking about my plans for the rest of the weekend, and I told him I was preaching. And he starts talking about, without me even telling him that I'm talking about Matthew 4, he starts talking to me about how his church was talking about Matthew 4 last week. (laughs) So as we were getting closer today, I just felt like everyone was going to be tired of hearing about Matthew 4. Everyone was going to be burnt out, and they would just check out and maybe even take a nap during the service. But I was talking to a a pastor at our church, Jordan West, about this and just the struggles that I was dealing with in preparation. And he said, no, people aren't going to be burnt out. I believe that God has actually been preparing everyone to hear your message today. So I'm going to go with that rather than all of y'all are bored. (laughs) So go ahead and turn with me to Matthew chapter 4. And in Matthew chapter 4, not only do we see how to fight temptation, but we also see how Jesus is the perfect replacement for us and how he fulfills the Old Testament. And in my own research, I came across some interesting statistics about temptation. The magazine Discipleship Journal conducted a survey asking their readers what the biggest temptation was in their lives. And the results came back in this order. Number one was materialism. Number two was pride. Number three, self-centeredness. Number four, laziness. Number five is a tie between anger and sexual lust. Number six is envy. Number seven is gluttony. And number eight is lying. And what was interesting about this to me was that while your specific sin might not perfectly fit in each category like a puzzle piece, but almost every sin that you and I could ever commit and will ever commit can be boiled down into some combination of one of those nine categories. And not only did the survey ask what they were tempted by, but they also asked how they fought temptation and also what caused them to fall to temptation. And 81% of respondents said that they felt that their temptations were worse when they neglected time with God. 57% said it was worse when they were physically tired. 84% said they resisted temptations by prayer. 76% said they resisted by avoiding compromising situations. 66% said Bible study helped them fight temptation. And 52% said their accountability partner helped them fight temptation. So let's take a deeper look this morning at how Jesus fought temptation and how we can apply it to our lives. I'll be reading from Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city, and he had him stand on the highest point of the temple. And he said, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their splendor. And he said, All of this I will give to you if you bow down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and angels came and attended to him. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you for this opportunity that you've given me to preach in front of my church this morning. I thank you for everyone that's helped me in this process to get to this point. And I just pray that this morning that the congregation, they would not hear me, but they would hear you speak through me. 
And Lord, I just pray that this message would bring conviction, but also that it would bring healing. And I just thank you for everything that you've done for all of us and getting us all here today. In Jesus' name, amen. So in this passage, Jesus goes into the wilderness after being baptized by John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 3. And that passage in Matthew chapter 3 is the first time Jesus makes a public appearance as the Messiah. And it says after that that he is led by the Spirit into the wilderness with the purpose of being tempted. And at first glance, it may seem like that God is causing Jesus to be tempted or he is the one that is tempting Jesus. But we know that reading through the Bible, that's not how temptation works. In the book of James, it says, when you are tempted to do wrong, do not say that God is tempting me because God cannot be tempted, nor will he ever tempt anyone. So while we know that, while God knew that Jesus would be tempted, it was not him tempting Jesus. God wanted us to see how to resist temptation, but also how Jesus is the fulfillment of Israel, which we see in the parallels between Matthew chapter 4 and the Israelites in the Old Testament. It's not a coincidence that Jesus was being tempted while he was in the wilderness or after he had fasted for 40 days. It's mirroring the Israelites in the Old Testament because they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. The difference is the Israelites did not trust God and rather relied on themselves and failed where Jesus relies on God and overcomes temptation. So we're tempted by Satan for evil, but sometimes we can wonder where God is in those moments. He's not tempting us for evil, but rather he's tempting or testing us for our good. Romans 8.28 teaches us that God is working all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And we learn this in the story of Joseph, where God takes what was meant for evil by Joseph's brother, selling him into slavery, and turns that into good. And Joseph's position in Egypt actually ends up saving the entire nation of Israel. So we're tempted by Satan for evil, and we're tested by God for good. So realize this, temptation by the devil towards evil is ultimately a part of God's sovereign plan and him testing us for good. And every temptation in your life and in my life is a temptation to see God as rival rather than our father. And it's like this all the way back in the beginning in Genesis chapter 3. Satan convinces Adam and Eve that God is their rival, not their father. He tells them that God is holding something away from them that would be good for them. And every time you and I sin, it's you and I saying, my father does not know what is best for me. I know what is best for me. So we see this tie between temptation and sonship because it's exactly where we're tempted. Every sin that you and I commit is tantamount to the rejection of God as our father, who in that moment, in that instant, is the one who knows what is best for us and is committed to providing for us. And we see in this passage that Jesus is tempted by three things. He's tempted by food or with his personal desire, with freedom without consequences, and with power and status. And Satan, tempts the exact, Satan uses the exact same temptations on the first man in Genesis chapter 3. And it says in Genesis chapter 3 that Satan said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that if you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So we see that Satan uses the exact same temptations on Adam and Eve as he does on Jesus. First, he appeals to their physical appetite, where in Genesis 3, he says, you may eat of any tree. And in Matthew chapter 4, he says, you may eat by changing stones into bread. He tempts them with an appeal to personal gain, where he says, you shall not die, in Genesis 3. And in Matthew 4, he says, you will not hurt your foot. And lastly, he tempts with an appeal to power or glory, where in Genesis 3, he says, you will be like God. And in Matthew 4, he says, you will have all the kingdoms of the world. 
So in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve fall to temptation and bring sin into the world. And when Jesus is faced with the exact same temptation in Matthew chapter 4, he overcomes it and shows us how he is the man that will provide a way out for us. So we see that the man that brought sin into the world and the man that would die for our sins and save us from our sins are tempted in the exact same way. And there's some good news and there's some bad news with that. The good news is Satan's lazy. He's not coming up with new ways to tempt us. 1 Corinthians 10.16 says that there's no temptation that is not common to man. He's using the exact same strategy that he used on the first man back in the beginning of humanity in our world's history as he's using on the literal son of God. The bad news is the reason that Satan is lazy is because we're lazy. Satan is not coming up with new strategies because he knows that his strategies work 99% of the time. Satan's laziness is a result of our laziness and lack of fighting against temptation. And in Genesis 3, in the story of the Israelites, along with Matthew chapter 4, backs up Hebrews 4.15, where it says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet remained without sin. Jesus was tempted the exact same way Adam and Eve were in the same way we are today. While the specific temptation may be different from these examples, the principles are the same. Desire, freedom without consequence, and status. So let's take a deeper look at Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, and see, one, how Jesus fights temptation, and two, how Jesus is our perfect substitute, his victorious over evil, how where Adam and Eve failed and where the Israelites failed, Jesus was victorious over temptation. We'll start in Matthew chapter 4, verse 3, where it says, The tempter came to him and said, If you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but by by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So Satan is tempting us with what we want and what we desire. Jesus fasted for 40 days, therefore he's hungry, even maybe on the point of starvation. And I know for me that if I don't eat every four to six hours, I start getting pretty hungry. So I can't imagine how hungry Jesus is after 40 days of not eating. And Satan knows that. He knows what our flesh desires and will use that to move us away from viewing God as the provider of all things that are good. So you desire food. That's good. Satan takes that which is good and tempts you towards undisciplined overeating. You desire sleep and he tempts you towards apathy and laziness. You desire sex and he tempts you towards lust, pornography, adultery, homosexuality. You desire this or you desire that, and he tempts you at the point of your desires to fulfill those God-given wants apart from God's given word. And Satan points us towards the physical to satisfy our desires, which we see him do in Genesis chapter 3, where he says, Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? But God is the only thing that can permanently satisfy us. And Jesus points to that by quoting Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3, where it says, And he humbled you and let your hunger... Let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And this book of Deuteronomy is the last telling of the law before the Israelites were allowed to enter into the promised land. It's a reminder to this new generation to trust God and to follow God's word. Their parents, this previous generation, were not allowed to enter into the promised land because of their disobedience. So Moses reminds them of what God's will is and for them to obey God's commandments. So Jesus here responds to Satan by saying, while I have the authority to turn these stoves into bread and it would satisfy my hunger, my physical needs are not what I look towards to satisfy me. What satisfies me is God. And this is not the only time that Jesus says this. 
In John chapter 4, Jesus says to the woman at the well, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. And in John chapter 6, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So what Jesus is saying in these verses is, While physical desires may satisfy you in the moment, you will always hunger for them again. And he's not just talking about food. He's referring to all desires of our flesh. Think about addiction, whether it be drugs, pornography, gossiping, uh, bitterness. Every, every time you get that itch to look at those pictures or to do that drug again or to talk about that person or just have this unrighteous anger, every time you do it, that itch comes back more and more aggressively each time we do it. The desires of our flesh will never fully satisfy us. The only thing that can satisfy our true desires is our relationship with Jesus Christ. When we're being tempted, Satan is trying to disguise something that can't satisfy us as the thing that we desire most. To me, this reminds me of impossible burgers. They have to add all this stuff to make a whole bunch of nothing resemble meat. I think we have up here the ingredients for an impossible burger. I'm not even going to try to read all that, all those chemical names. And even with all that soy protein concentrate and all those seed oils and all that, it's still not even close to a real burger. You know what's in a real burger? Beef. That's it. It doesn't need anything else. The burger doesn't need marketing. You know exactly what a real burger is, and you know that it's going to fulfill you. Satan has to market sin to us to make it seem enticing. And even though we know nothing about it's real, we still fall for it 99% of the time. The next thing that Satan tempts Jesus with is freedom without consequences. Verses 5 through 7 of Matthew chapter 4 say, Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. And he said, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. So here Satan is tempting Jesus with this this idea of freedom without consequences, which is what I think we hear when we just hear that word freedom. We think that freedom means that you can do or I can do whatever I want and I'll have no consequences and I'm not going to get in trouble for it. And that's just, that's not how the world works. I have the freedom this morning to go outside and steal your car. But there's going to be consequences for that. I'm probably going to get arrested and there's at least going to be some sort of punishment for me doing that. And nevertheless, even though Satan knows that Jesus knows that, Satan still tries to tempt Jesus with this idea. And to do so, he quotes Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12. But he purposely did not quote it accurately. He left out an important phrase where it says, in all of your ways, referring to someone being inside of God's will. So Satan says to Jesus, jump off this temple and prove to everyone that you're the Messiah. After all, the scripture says his angels will protect you and you won't even hurt your foot as you come down. And notice here how Satan tries to twist scripture to trick Jesus. He does the exact same thing in Genesis chapter 3, verse 4. When Eve tells Satan that God said that they would die if they ate of the forbidden fruit, Satan responds with, no, you won't surely die. The scary part about this to me is that Satan knows scripture and he'll use it to try to tempt you. And this is why we need to memorize scripture. Jesus uses scripture to fight temptation, but he also knew the scripture enough to recognize when it had been twisted. And I think we can all agree this morning that if Jesus did something, we should probably try to do it too. Psalm 119 says, I have hidden your word in your heart that I might not sin against you. So we see in scripture that the best way to fight temptation is scripture. 
And Jesus again responds to Satan with a verse from Deuteronomy, this time chapter 6, verse 16, where it says, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. This refers back to the book of Exodus when the Israelites were complaining about the lack of water and Moses rebukes them for testing God. And many times in our lives, we try to manufacture these situations and put God in this little box to man- like make up our own test for God to get him to do what we want him to do. We say things like, God, if you do blank for me, I'll do blank for you. Or if God, if you, feel, if you heal this damage in my life, I'll, I'll follow you. And a lot of times we treat God like a vending machine. We walk, he's over here and we just, whenever we want him, not when, we don't have him all the time, but when we do want him, we walk over here, we press the two buttons, E5, I get, I get my pack of Oreos or whatever, and I just move on with my day. That's not how God works. God isn't this transaction where we just get from him what we want. It's a relationship that we have with him. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. For him to jump off the temple would be testing God. And to test God is to act outside of his will. And we cannot expect God to protect us from the consequences of acting outside of his will. Over spring break, I went on a mission trip to Nicaragua with our youth group here at the Heights. And on that Sunday, we went to the local church that we would be serving in throughout the week. And some of us had the opportunity to share our testimony with that church. One of the people in our group gave his testimony, and he said something that really stuck with me. And it's not even something that I'm sure, I don't even know if he thought about when he was saying it, or if it was even like a big point of his testimony that he was trying to make. But I, it really stuck out to me, and I'm going to use it in all of my stuff from now on. So, sorry about that. But, um, but what he said was that God lets us choose what we want to do, but he does not let us choose the consequences for those actions. With Adam and Eve, God leaves them the choice of eating the forbidden fruit but they don't get to choose their consequences when they do it. With the Israelites, they chose to not trust God, so they did not get to go into the promised land. Again, we cannot expect God to protect us from the consequences of acting outside of his will. And the last thing that Satan tempts Jesus with is status or the worship of self. It says in Matthew chapter 4, verses 8 through 10, Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their splendor. And he said, all of this I will give to you if you bow down and worship me. Jesus says to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Satan offers Jesus the kingdoms of the world and all Jesus has to do is bow down and worship Satan. And Jesus knows that he eventually will have dominion over all of the world anyway, but he also knows what he has to go through before that, which is the crucifixion. Satan says to Jesus, look, if you just worship me, I'll give you dominion over all of this and you don't have to be crucified. And while Jesus does willingly go through with God's plan to be crucified, he does ask God, is there any other way to, do, to accomplish our goal without me being crucified? Jesus knew that the crucifixion would be a gruesome, violent way of dying. And he did not want to go through with that, but he did because he loves us. And I'm sure Satan knew that Jesus didn't want to go through with what comes with being crucified. And Satan offers Jesus the easy way out. Satan is also tempting Jesus with this idea of self-worship by giving him rule of the world. Satan does the same thing in Genesis chapter 3 where he tells Eve, if she eats of the fruit, she'll be like God. Jesus again responds with Deuteronomy chapter 6, this time with verse 13, where it says, It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. This verse in Deuteronomy refers to all the times that the Israelites worshipped other gods and Moses is reminding them of who the one true God is. The God that performed miracles for them and gave them this promised land. 
Jesus responds to Satan by saying, God is the only one worthy of our worship. You, Satan, are not worthy of, my, of our worship, nor is anything that you can give me. And after that, Satan leaves and just gives up, and angels immediately come to Jesus' aid. So in this story of Jesus' encounter with Satan in the wilderness, in that sheer animal force of temptation we deal with, ought to remind us of something. We're, we are in a spiritual war. We're in a spiritual war right now. We'll be in a spiritual war tomorrow, and we will be in a spiritual war every day until Jesus Christ returns. It also ought to remind us that there's only one man in all of history who has wrestled with Satan and prevailed. The temptations of Jesus in the desert show us what kind of strategies the powers of this world will use on us. But none of these are new temptations, just new ways of surrendering to old temptations. The temptations themselves, as scripture puts it, are common to man. And in Jesus' desert testing, we see how true this is. Here the scriptures identify the universal strategies of temptation. You will be tempted exactly as Jesus was, because Jesus was being tempted exactly as we are. You will be tempted with your desires, with a life without consequence, and with self-worship. You will be tempted to provide for yourself, to protect yourself, and to exalt yourself. And at the core of all of these is a common impulse to cast off the goodness of God. And when I say that we share common temptations, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that you and I have the struggle with the exact same temptation in the exact same way. But you are being tempted right now. And so am I. And most of the time, we don't even know it. And in every one of these moments, we either want to overestimate or underestimate temptation. We overestimate it by thinking things like, well, I have these feelings, so therefore this must just be the kind of person that I am. Or I've always been this way, so this is how God made me. And we underestimate it by thinking, or we overestimate it by thinking, I have these feelings, so I must be this way. We underestimate it by thinking, well, I'm not tempted to do anything terrible like murder or adultery. I'm just tempted by little things like gossip or bitterness. And though the gospel brings good news to tempted rebels like us, just as our temptation is part of a larger story, so is our exit strategy from its power. The same spirit who led Jesus through the wilderness and empowered him to overcome the evil one now surges through all of us who are joined by faith in Jesus Christ. We overcome temptation the same way he did, by trusting in our Father and hearing his voice. And at the end of this gospel message is Jesus, who is tempted and tried in every way that we are, but who was never anything but triumphant. He is the high priest who shares our nature, who can pray for us and with us. He is, as God announced right before his testing, the beloved son of God, who is not by himself. He is the firstborn, to be sure, but he is the firstborn among many brothers. Because we have a sympathetic high priest tempted in every way that we are, we are able then to, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace in the time of need. But while Jesus is a good example for us, if that's all we view him as, we're missing the bigger picture. Just before this passage in Matthew chapter 4, we see in Matthew chapter 3 Jesus being baptized. And at this time, baptism was not to symbolize your faith in Jesus, because Jesus had not made a public appearance yet, so you weren't really aligning yourself with anything. But rather, baptism was a way of showing the cleansing of sins. So even John in this moment, John the Baptist is like, well, I, sh- I shouldn't be the one baptizing Jesus. He should be baptizing me, because Jesus is sinless. But the point of Jesus' baptism is not to cleanse his sins, but rather to show how he would be the replacement for us. We later see the fulfillment of this on the cross. Jesus was crucified in the most violent, gruesome way possible 
so that we might repent of our sins and be saved through him. And that was supposed to be us on that cross. But instead, Jesus replaced us there, and through his death and resurrection, we have the opportunity to spend eternity with him in heaven. And every other religion says, you live a righteous life and give it to God. Where Christianity says, Jesus has lived a righteous life, and he gives it to you. When we treat Jesus more as an example than a savior, we fail to see how he is our substitute. When you start to say, well, maybe if I live more like Jesus did, then I'll deserve God's favor. We put ourselves right in with every other religion of the world, trying to earn God's favor through good behavior. And whenever trouble comes, if you think Jesus is just your example, you'll either be mad at God or you'll be mad at yourself. But if you go to Jesus as a substitute, it gives you the ability to fight temptation and to find victory or to repent of failings and find victory. Jesus has already paid the price for our sin, so we can look in the face of temptation and say, whatever you have to offer me does not compare to the one who gave it all for me. And whenever you fall to temptation, you can look the devil in the face and say, Jesus already died for that, so I can run to my heavenly father who accepts me because I am in Christ and I have no need to hide from him. And if you've already accepted Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior this morning, that's awesome. And I'm so glad that I can call you my brother or my sister in Christ. And I hope this message has encouraged you in your, fight tempta- in, in your fight with temptation and showed you ways to overcome that temptation. The good news of scripture is that God provides us with a way out and it's not by trying harder or doing better. It's by looking to God and seeing what he provides you is better than anything of this world. Those in here today who have accepted Jesus, I challenge you to memorize scripture as we see Jesus do. This week, just start with Psalm 119.11, which I referenced earlier where it says, I have hidden your word in your heart that I might not sin against you. And then just build from there. The more you know scripture, the more successful you will be in fighting temptation. But if you've not accepted Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, I urge you to accept him. Through this message, I hope that I've shown that the only way out of sin and temptation is through Jesus Christ. The only way you will be permanently satisfied is through Jesus Christ. And I won't lie to you, becoming a Christian doesn't make your fight with temptation any easier. If anything, you're tempted more as a Christian. But the only way to fight off temptation is to rely on Jesus. And the Bible says that the only way to be saved is through Jesus, and that by doing so, he will grant you eternal life with him and God in heaven forever. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you again just for this opportunity that you've given me to come and preach in front of my church. And I just thank you for everyone that's helped guide me in this process. I thank you for showing me this passage and just helping me in this preparation, God. I thank you for all the people that have come out here today and just that they've taken their time out of their day to come hear your word, God. I pray that this message brought conviction throughout this room, but also that it brought healing, that it showed the people in here that you are the only way out of their sin and their temptation and that they would accept you and accept you as the father that guides them through that. Lord, again, I just thank you for everything that you've done for everyone in this room. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Micah has reminded us of some clear facts this morning. One is that Satan has a game plan. And he has a bag of tricks that he has to try to get us to stumble, to struggle, and to fail. And the bad news is it works. The Bible says we have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. We have not defeated Satan. We fail in that battle. 
But the good news is there is someone who has won the victory. There is someone who has defeated temptation. There is someone who has defeated sin. There is someone who has defeated death and the grave. And his name is Jesus. And the greatest news is that he takes his victory and offers it as a gift to you and me. That through our faith and trust in him, as Micah has so clearly shown this morning, we can have everlasting life. We can have forgiveness for our sins. The Bible says, to all who received him, who believed in his name, to them he gave the right to be children of God. That is available to all of you here today. In just a moment, we're going to conclude. We're going to leave. And if you're here today and you've come to realize that you need that relationship with Jesus that Micah's been talking about, You need to know him as your victor, as your savior. Then we would encourage you when you leave to go out to our next steps desk, right out here in the middle, right in front of the big windows. You go out there, there's some folks out there who will talk with you and help you to understand that better. Or maybe you've got some questions about it. Go out there and they'll help to answer those questions, showing you what the Bible says. Maybe you're here today and you're looking for a new church home and Maybe you've been coming for weeks, months. Sometimes we even have folks who've come for years and then realize this is the church that God wants them to belong to. Or maybe it's your first time, but you know this is where God wants you. You want to be a part of this church. Go there to that same desk, that next steps desk, and there are people there that will help you. Just tell them, I want to join this church, and they'll show you what you need to do. Or if you're a first-time guest, We have a little gift we'd like to give you this morning, so we want you to go out to, again, that very same desk, Next Steps, and there are folks there that will give you a gift. Just tell them you're a first-time guest. So basically, what's your next step this morning? Go to the Next Steps desk, and somebody will tell you. Again, we, we thank Micah and all of our team that was up here leading us in worship. We thank our young people. Yeah. We thank our young people who have been hosting, who've been in guest services, who've been teaching life group, who've been out in the parking lot, just spending the day serving us, their church. And we thank them all for that. We thank those who lead them week after week here at our church. And we thank you for being here today. And as you go out, have a great week and may God bless you.